Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum. This is one of over a thousand programs we've done since the pandemic began. We are live streaming in John Judas. We've had him here many times before. And uh, welcome, and we hope you come back and see some more as well. But today we're going to talk with John Judas about his latest book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone?, a very interesting analysis of a long period of history of democratic relationship with the working class voters that usually were its base. Thanks for coming back, John, and uh, appreciate your being here. I, I appreciate your asking me. I wish I was there in person. So the background you, you talk about when you say, where have all the Democrats gone? You, you point out that certain Democrats have not done what Democratic leaders have not done exactly what you would have expected them to do in dealing with the working class or their base. Uh, so why don't you go back and, and take a little bit of the history? Like what, what did FDR do to create this, this uh, merger and, and uh, where did it go from there? It's just, just like a, a big overview of it. That, so what you're talking about is clear. Well, the, the strength of the Democratic Party, when it's been at its high point, uh, really was uh, the Jackson era, Jacksonian era, the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, and the Roosevelt era. And what marked both of those, and again, I'm not uh, justifying all the, I know know who Andrew Jackson is and Mm. Roosevelt had his problems, but the strength of those parties were that that they were seen as the party of, uh, in Jackson's case, the common man and Roosevelt, you could say the common man and woman. He used to talk about the forgotten American. And they hit that sweet spot of the American electorate. And uh, by doing that, they they uh, uh, put the other part, their, the rival party, the Whigs in one case, the uh, Republicans in the other, as the parties of the elites or the business or what have you. So that was really the key to the, to the success of the Democratic Party. Uh, and uh, Democratic presidential candidates and uh, congressional candidates continue to uh, talk about that. But the party sometime in the 1970s or so lost it and could no longer credibly represent itself as a party of the common man and woman. And you really remember that, I mean, from Ronald Reagan, who was able to do this incredible trick in spite of his own politics, in spite of his uh, many of his views, I would say, uh, did not redound to the uh, benefit of average Americans, was able to present himself as the as a representative of that part of America. So so something happened during that period. And uh, the thesis of our book is that uh, it's not just a a matter of what we want the Democrats to do. It would be fine if the Republicans did that, but we need a party in America that represents the many and not the few, uh, that can speak for uh, for our broken tax system, for instance, which uh, just uh, incredibly favors the the wealthy, uh, that can uh, have programs, again, that benefit the many and not the few. So it's... uh that that's really what we're trying to do with with the book. I think we're we're not trying to sort of predict the way things are going, but we're trying to present the way the way the way we think things should go. So 
whether a politician misrepresents their position or not, which is, you know, not exactly the only time that's ever happened. But your, your basic idea is that, that Ronald Reagan in making that appeal and Donald Trump in making that appeal have, have grabbed something that they really didn't have a right to, but that the Democrats, as if it was a possession that they, that they didn't take care of or didn't watch over. Yes, that's right. And, uh, you know, you could look at something like Obamacare, uh, made again with best of intentions, but uh, deeply compromised in terms of, of, of its formulation uh, with insurance companies, drug companies, and so on. So that uh, when it comes out, when it appears, uh, it's, it, it, one of the results of it is that let's say, I don't have the exact number, but people who make less than fifty dollars or $60,000 get a subsidy. But all of a sudden, when you get to that level, the middle class level, uh, the premiums actually jump because they don't get a subsidy. So the appearance, again, was that this was a policy where the middle class was having to subsidize and pay for the lower, the whatever, the lower class. It was a uh, it was seen as a subsidy for the poor, for minorities or whatever, and was very unpopular. A policy like Social Security, on the contrary, popular, universal. So I again I think that uh, that uh, with the best of intentions the democrats still have had these have had an approach for instance to social policy that doesn't get at this core idea that they are the party of the many but positions them as the par- party that wants to get the working class or the middle class to pay for the the uh, poor. And, you know, they would say, well, why isn't the upper class paying for it? Why isn't, why aren't kids being uh, bused to fancy suburban schools? This was a big problem, right? In the 1970s, a big issue. Why is the, uh, why are white working class people from South Boston having to uh, uh, pay for years of, of segregation? Why isn't it these wealthy suburbs? So I think, again, that something was lost in terms of the democratic approach to policy. And, uh, you know, we have a, a, an, an explanation of why that happened that I can go into if you want. I mm-hmm. mean, that's the. Well, yeah, I think uh, one of the interesting things about the book is, you know, you, you, you grant the, the desire and the policies as being well-intentioned. Um, but one of the things you didn't hit precisely uh, on the head, but I, you, you hinted at, is that those policies that were put in place with, with those even decent intentions um, probably had a counterproductive effect on the race relations, on the relations between the poor and the middle class um, over time because it was perceived as unfair. Um, and, yes, that's and, right. And, and, and therefore, people resent that and get angry about it, and anger is not a good thing for, for uh, any of these uh, divisions in our society. 
Well, you know, let's talk about the most explosive issue, the one of race. You can't uh, say that the Democrats did the wrong thing by being the supporters of civil rights in the 1960s of those big laws. That was something noble and something that should happen. It was, And sometimes you have to do things that don't necessarily uh, make you popular and give you big majorities. So let's grant that. But what happens afterwards is that the Democrats lose sight of the idea that they have to have policies that benefit uh, all races, uh, middle class as well as the lower class. uh, And and, uh, what you begin to get again, I mentioned the busing controversy, uh, the perception again that the Democrats are, uh, are, are focused on welfare uh, that in terms of crime, they're more worried about the uh, criminals than the victims. Uh, you have all these kinds of charges come up that have some basis in the 1970s and the 1980s and that help uh, the Republicans uh, come back and uh, uh, become competitive, become equal to the Democrats, if not in the 1980s, uh, superior to them electorally. So that's the, that's, that's, that's the real problem. Do you do you you don't touch on it too uh, at, at great length, but you touch on Carter's presidency. Do you feel that Carter was a transition away from uh, the older idea that that because he doesn't seem as a person to be that kind of a, a leader? But you think that the Democrats started to lose it, and that's why Reagan was able to take it away. Well, uh, Car- Carter, uh, the Carter election was a kind of illusion. Uh, Kevin Phillips wrote this book, The Emerging Dem- uh, Republican Majority, in 1970, and he really understood that if you put together the traditional Republican vote, uh, again, the, the uh, pra- prairie states, uh, some basis in the Northeast, uh, business, small business, uh, with the Wallace, the George Wallace vote, the backlash to the Democrats uh on civil rights uh, and also on the counterculture of the 60s, because Wallace really got both of those. If you put those together, you'll have a Republican majority replacing the Democratic majority. Mm-hmm. And when Rui Chichera and I did the emerging uh, Democratic majority, we could even show uh, in terms of numbers that Nixon's vote in 1972 was the Republican vote from 1968 plus Wallace's vote. That's how he got a landslide. Mm -hmm. Now, so then you get Watergate and you get the Republican Party destroyed for for, uh, at least two elections by that. And it creates an illusion when uh, Carter comes into office that the Democrats really have this enormous majority in the in the in uh, the country and in Congress because you have a, a veto-proof uh, Senate, you have a, a huge majority in the House. So, you know, the Car- Carter people and liberals at the time, and I remember thinking this myself. You, you know, this is a time when we can do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, we should we should have a. F- Full employment bill uh, that guarantees employment to everybody. We're going to have a. We're going to redo the tax code. We're going to redo campaign uh, finance. Um, we're going to uh, get some kind of national health insurance. We're going to get a consumer advocacy uh, agency that Ralph Nader is going to mm-hmm. inspire. 
So they had all these plans and they got to uh, they they got to the actual Congress and they found out that it was an illusion that a lot of the Democrats were more moderate and conservative and they couldn't get majorities. And uh, I think the two things that were really important were first, uh, they wanted to do labor law reform because the corporations were beginning to do this very aggressive campaign to knock out the unions. They were doing things that in some cases were illegal under labor law reform, but there were the, the penalties were so minimal that it was better. It was cost effective for them to fire organizers, for instance. So they were doing a lot of things and they were starting to succeed. So, uh, the AFL-CIO and liberal Democrats wanted to reform labor, the labor laws. And here again, that was one of the first things. They, Democrats can't do it. They come within one vote of trying to, of winning in the Senate, but they lose. And that's the, that's, that's the end of that. Tax reform, uh, Carter wanted to uh, uh, eliminate a lot of the business loopholes, the mm-hmm. three martini lunch, it was called. So we had this big tax reform bill. And what happens with it is by the time that the lobbyists and the politicians, including the Democrats, get around to uh, passing something, it's exactly the opposite of what the original bill did. It reduces capital gains. It makes the tax code more regressive rather than more progressive. So you really have during that Carter era uh, the breakdown of the New Deal, uh, New Deal Democratic politics. It just becomes very difficult. And if you go there, from there to Reagan, uh, he pursues a lot of the things that the Republican uh, Republicans in Congress and the think tanks and the groups had wanted to do in the 1970s. Uh, the the air controller strike. Uh, the the labor board under Reagan uh, allows union allows companies to replace striking workers. This is something that was not done before. So it's during that period that you get the erosion of the labor movement in America. I mean, one of the key things to the success of the Democrats as the party of the common man and woman in the 30s, 40s, and 50s was that. About a third of American workers uh, belong to unions, and you know, add that again to the to their families, family members, and you get the basis for for uh, uh, you know a real majority there. Because not only do they contribute people and money, they're also the the key organizers within state and local elections. Um, so as the labor movement begins to lose power. Um, the Democrats themselves within their the people who count uh, lose their focus. Uh, if you think of a if you think of a party as having a kind of governing class of institutions and people, big shots, uh, big institutions, big business. Well, in the fifties and sixties, big labor was a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the nineteen eighties, no, it was just another interest group. I mean, there was the AARP, there was uh, environmental groups, and then there were the labor unions. Again, it was no longer that had this kind of veto over uh, 
anti-liberal conservative legislation. Uh, and, and that really changes the Democratic Party. And it makes it such that uh, when when they go at, get around to doing legislation, there isn't that big push from the bottom. I mean, it's fine if it's if it's uh, legislation on the environment and things like that. Or, or you know, you go, go later to the kind of social issues of the of the our century, uh, gay rights, because the business business, uh, let's say Wall Street, Silicon Valley, Hollywood is fine with all those social issues, and so you get an alliance between them and the groups that come out of the '60s, the environmental organizations, feminists, civil rights, and they have a lot of clout in Washington. But the labor movement used to be central to the Democratic Party, and it no longer is. It's just another group. And that's really uh, one of the key factors that changes the way the Democratic Party operates when it comes down to finally doing something and representing uh, you know, the middle of America. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, the way you, that you pursue this, is, it's almost as if the Republicans have had the majority ever since 1970 with Carter being a, a slight exception, but not, not as clear as it was. The Reagan revolution not being such a revolution, but, but just part of the process. And the fact that there were 12 years in a row there, you know, before Clinton, and Clinton came in with 42% of the vote, right? And then um, and, and governed from the middle as well. And then you said Obama also governed not, not in favor of the Labor Party. So uh, you, you, you analyze Joe Biden as closest back to the, the way that the Democrats used to run things. Is, is still, do you see it that way, uh, given, given that he's, you know, given what's going on right now in the, in the well, election coming? Well, I, I think Biden was a, uh, was a throwback. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a throwback partly, too, because uh, a lot of the, some of the business Democrats uh, started to recognize that they'd gone off the track, let's say, on trade with China and the, and industrial policy and the, that uh, so there was a certain there was there wasn't the same kind of pushback uh, on those kind of issues or financial regulation that uh, you saw in the night in the 1990s where Democrats really uh, it was fine with them if you deregulated finance. So so there was a change there. But uh, again, Biden was an old style uh, Democrat himself, and uh, he understood, for instance, that uh, uh, Trump's slogan, uh, Make America Great Again, you know, during that 2016 election, I was just struck by the Obama and both Obama and Hillary Clinton said, well, this doesn't make any sense. America is great again. Mm-hmm. They didn't get that something had been lost, mm-hmm. that people didn't want goods anymore that were made in America. And then that was, a, you know, that was something that the, that really was was a problem. And so uh, also the question of unity, of uh, not just uh, uh uh, not not just uh, the Democrats being an assemblage of different uh, ethnicities and races and religions, or but a united party. So Biden talked about the United States of America. So he did uh, he did bring back a lot of those themes, but underneath that, he really couldn't uh, combat the kind of erosion of support that the Democrats had suffered over the thirty years. So. He, you know, he a lot of his success was he won marginally back 
some of those white working class voters mm-hmm. in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin that had deserted, deserted the Democrats in in uh, 2016. But he didn't transform the party. And, you know, now they're, they're in big trouble. You indicate from the statistics, you have a lot of interesting statistics in your book, too. Um, but you indicate from the statistics that a lot of local Republicans running did better than Trump did in terms of the percentage of the vote in, in 2020. Right? That, 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 there was, that there were more Republican votes than there were Trump votes. Yeah, I think that was true in 2016 as well. Uh-huh. I mean, if uh, I always thought if it would have been a Kasich uh, Rubio or some, you know, uh, combination of them, the Republicans would have done even better. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a, there's been a kind of uh, ironic thing. Let's take the issue of trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of Clinton's support for NAFTA in 1993 and then for uh, China entering the WTO, uh, a lot of the blame for uh, trade policies and what happened in all these, in, in, you know, small and mid-sized industrial towns in the South and Midwest uh, came to the Democrats, even though uh, Repub- in some of those cases, I mean, Clinton passed NAFTA with Republican votes. It lost in the, in, in the House on uh, 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 d- he needed Republicans in order to pass the bill mm-hmm. in the uh, in the House of Representatives. So, you know, it's this kind of odd situation, and you find it now in the uh, in the House of Representatives for the Republicans, where uh, they really do not represent the interests of uh, the average American and what they're doing. I mean, the main priority that they the new Republican House when they came in in 2023 was uh, to uh, get rid of uh, the uh, tax audits on rich people. So, you know, (laughs) it's a very odd situation. I mean, Trump did understand uh, a lot of the politics and what changed. He had this kind of intuitive understanding of how you had to get rid of the old Republican economics and how you had to had to also repudiate the forever wars and the war in Iraq, which was again, that was a Republican war. Uh, So he did have this intuitive understanding, but that party is still pretty divided. I, you know, don't. I'm not saying that that Republicans have now become the party of the common man and woman. In fact, both parties are screwed up mm-hmm. and uh, elections are being fought pretty much by which party can make the other party's extreme wing uh, the most notorious uh, part of the election. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if if the Republicans can can make the election over illegal immigration and defund the police, they're going to win. If the Democrats can make it over banning abortion and uh, Trump uh, destroying democracy, they're going to win. But in both those cases, I mean, you're talking about addressing the most extreme sides of each party. You brought up immigration, illegal immigration, and you have a very interesting section in your book about that. And you bring up the Hesburgh Committee, um, uh, Theodore Hesburgh uh, being picked to to uh, lead it. Uh, he was the president of uh, Notre Dame University at the time in the 1980s. And they had a particular approach to it. It's a little, it's detailed, but I think it's worth talking about because in detail, because it, 
it showed that someone thought it all through. And, and it wasn't the usual committee where they, you know, where they didn't have, they, they seemed to have thought it through and said, you can't do this without this or it won't work, can't do this without this or it won't work. But they thought that they had a, a, a solution to the problem, which was never actually put into effect. But why don't you, why don't you explain that? Because you, I, I, I got the impression that you would like that to come back and be used. Uh, yeah, I've been thinking about it this week because uh-huh. there's a, uh, <laughs> you know, immigration is a big issue now in right. Washington. And uh, it's an instance where I think the Democrats aren't listening to the electorate. Uh, and some of the Republican stuff is a little screwy, but for the, but I agree with some of the things that they're uh, that they're criticizing the Democrats for. In the in the 1980s and 1990s, you had you had first this committee that was organized. The chair was uh, Father Hesburgh from uh, Notre Dame, notable notable uh, civil rights figure in America, uh, liberal. Uh, then in 19 the 1990s, you had a very similar committee that was chaired by Barbara Jordan, uh, black woman, congresswoman from uh, Texas. Uh, Again, very notable figure for her. She gave a great keynote address at the Democratic Party convention. So yet both these and both of them were oriented around the same kind of ideas. First of all, you couldn't continue to have enormous numbers of low wage, unskilled workers coming into the country, whether they came legally or illegally. Uh, the effect of which was to put enormous pressure on workers who are already here who only had, let's say, a high school education. What you were going to do was you were going to create tremendous surpluses at the bottom of the workforce and bring down wages and put these workers at the mercy of employers. And, uh, you know, I, they were absolutely right. And what happens in the 1980s and 1990s is, again, a lot of employers bring in both legal and illegal immigrants. And uh, they also use that to break unions, uh, to create a situation where, let's say, the meatpacking industry, which used to be a middle class uh, uh, industry, it used to be a good job to get becomes a very, very dangerous low-wage job. And they do that partly by completely transforming the workplace itself. So the the approach of the Hesburgh and Jordan committees was you've got to do something uh, about the illegal immigrants who are already here. You can't have them just remain an exploitable uh, class, uh, uh, people who are at the mercy of employers uh, and emergency rooms. So they were for some kind of path to citizenship for them, and it becomes part of the 1986 legislation. But they also said you have to do something to discourage illegal immigration. And the thing that they uh, both of them hit on was you have to penalize employers who do this, who bring in, uh, you know, put ads in new, uh, newspapers in Mexico to recruit uh, to come into the country to replace the workers they have. Uh, so both of them advocated that. They had this kind of, uh, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand approach, uh, which, I, you know, I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, Jordan and Hesper also thought that you had to orient the uh, uh, immigration around bringing in 
uh, skilled workers, workers that America actually needed at the time, rather than creating, again, this surplus at the bottom. So they had, again, that was another part of their approach. Uh, what happens is that they get uh, pushed aside, and that approach really uh, becomes repudiated. It was it was at the beginning in the 1980s, both the labor unions and the NAACP supported. The only may the only real opposition was business and some Hispanic lobbies who were very unhappy with the idea of forcing employers to verify whether their workers were uh, uh, eligible to work or not. Uh, we're having exactly the same fight now in uh, Washington. If you look at the uh, Republican uh, uh, HR2, H2, it's called, the bill that they passed that uh, could become a basis of a uh, shutting down the government again. One of the things it does have in it is this e-verify system where uh, the uh, employers have to use the national computer database social security numbers to verify that their workers are uh, actually uh, eligible to work in the United States. The problem with the Republican approach is that, uh, you know, as far as the legal immigrants now, they want to just deport them. So it's sort of a kind of screw you to them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, I think the the uh, approach of Hesburgh and Jordan was really commendable because it looked at the problem from both sides, both uh, eliminating uh, this kind of this pool of illegal immigration in the country by offering a path to citizenship, but also securing our borders and securing uh, people overstaying visas, not through necessarily making a wall, but through making it illegal for, for uh, employers to hire people who are in the country illegally. And that's that remains, I think, a key. I think a lot of the issue about putting more uh, police on the border and whatever uh, it's just not going to do the trick. I mean, we keep building walls and it doesn't uh, solve the problem. A, a lot of the comments that you make uh, in your book and, and analyses uh, sound like they would appeal to the middle 60 percent of the vote or whatever. Um, and uh, the parties, as you said, are both uh, uh, obsessed with their extremes uh, and making them happy. So. Do you think that that leaves a, a wide opening for a, a, a third party moderate? I mean, obviously the uh, what, what's it called? The no title, no uh, labels, no no labels uh, policy doesn't, doesn't seem like they have the right PR behind them. But it's, <laughs> <laughs> but but do you think that there's a possibility of that? Not obviously next year, but sometime if this keeps up. Well. Uh, n no, in terms of third party, I, I, our first past the post election system, uh, where the party that that uh, gets a plurality wins is just not conducive. The the third parties become spoilers, and uh, it's very hard to have a viable third party. But having said that, there is this incredible hole in the electorate. If you look at the uh, uh, at the Gallup. Uh, surveys of Democrats, Republicans, and people who either are independents or decline to state. If you go back like, oh, 15 years, I think maybe to 2008, if you look at it, you get like, uh, you know, 35 Democrat, 25 uh, 
Republican and, uh, you know, 35 or something like that. You get you get roughly you get slight Democratic edge, but you get the independents about a little less than uh, Democrats or equal to. Now, if you go at it, it's like 25, 25, the parties and 50 independents. Mm-hmm. So those aren't people who are going to vote independent. A lot of them lean Democratic or they lean Republican. And, the you know, the the some of the political scientists will tell you it's all an illusion. But I don't think it's an illusion. I think it represents a real dissatisfaction with the choices that people are, are facing when they go to the polls. And uh, so, you know, there is an opening for a new kind of politics. But uh, I, I think it's going to have to come... Uh, through one or the other parties. And you do see that, you see it in the Republican Party. There are these, uh, you know, organizations, think tank magazines. I've mentioned one called American Affairs. There's a think tank called American Compass uh, that want to create a kind of, if you want to call it a sanitized Trump politics, but a politics that's based around the needs of American workers. And uh, actually, they're pro-union. It's a, it's amazing. Uh, but uh, within the Republican Party, they, it's very hard for those kind of groups to gain a lot of influence. There is, but again, I mean, I think you'll find in both parties, you'll find tendencies uh, toward creating this new kind of cis, you could call it centrist politics, but uh, not yet. And uh, we're stuck. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure I see a way out uh, short of a new kind of crisis that force, forces uh, the parties to really rethink. And do you think part of the issue uh, for both parties, since we're being equal here, uh, is that sort of the baby boom generation just doesn't stop, uh, you know, staying in power? It took a while to take over, but um, I mean, the, the age, the average age of political leadership has got to be the highest it's ever been. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it sure seems like it. And and that maybe that's kind of stifling the process as well. Not that well, we're not the uh, you're not, you're not wrong about the age thing. I mean, I don't think we've ever I mean, and people are becoming more functional. Uh, I say myself as they get older, but uh, yeah, no, we've never had this kind of gerontocracy uh, Mm -hmm. in America. I mean, uh, so uh, Macron of France just uh, uh, appointed this 34-year-old prime minister. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, And uh, I mean, I... Again, here, the, it's distressing to say this, but I think the uh, Republicans in some way have a stronger bench than the, the uh, Republicans. And there are more people in the 50-year-old, 40-year-old range uh, who are just at least starting to rethink. I'm thinking about Rubio, Hawley, J.D. Vance. Uh, some of those people, I mean, they're, again, I think you can see them kind of rethinking. I'm worried about the Democrats, that there is a, the, that there's an absence of people. You have the, I mean, the politician like Sherrod Brown from Ohio that I thought was really on the right track. Marcy Kaptur uh, from Ohio, she's what, like 80 years old. Uh, so uh, you really don't have uh a, a strong base within the Democratic Party that's trying to rethink along these lines. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been getting a lot of questions for you and from the audience that's, that's uh, watching. So that's great. And uh, I think I'm going to 
put a few in right away because uh, they're, they're going to cover the same topics I was anyway. So we've got one from Susan Pfeiffer. She says, uh, this is going to the Affordable Care Act. She said, the ACA was the only way we could get the idea of the Affordable Care Act across the finish line for a first iteration. The idea was to get it in use for a few years, see how it worked, and then fix it. But we never got a majority again to fix it. It's still ACA 1.0. Do you agree with that analysis? I, I think that's completely right. I mean, what we used to think at the time, I mean, people who were... Uh, you know, look through America to the country with rosy colored glasses like myself was we used to say, well, you know, Social Security was completely flawed at the beginning. I mean, uh, it, both poor and poor whites and blacks really got screwed because uh, agricultural workers weren't included, you know, all this mm -hmm. domestic workers. Uh, but it got improved. And by the 1950s, it was great mm -hmm. uh, with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you had the same kind of compromises at the beginning, but because our politics is locked into this kind of unstable equilibrium where we rarely have a situation where one party is completely in control, uh, either Democrats or Republicans, uh, you know, you do one thing and then the next part of the party comes in and screws around with it. And, you know, what you strengthen the the Environmental Protection Agency and then Trump comes in and, and gets rid of half the people. So it's a it's it, we have this very difficult situation. Biden did a lot of interesting things in his first two years uh, for uh, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act. Uh, but, you know, he's not going to do anything these next two years. Uh, everything is completely stalemated. So, yes, that's that's a key problem in our politics. And again, that's that's why I think we have this uh, crazy situation where the, about half the electorate uh, finds uh, uh, finds itself uh, uh, throwing up its hands and saying, well, I'm an independent or I declined to state which party I identify with because they see such a paralysis in Washington. I thought it was uh very indicative of that paralysis that uh, Senator, uh, not, uh, Representative McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, was not able to hold on to the speaker position after having tried so hard to get it, and that the replacement is probably going to end up with the same policies or whatever, but that there's a, like an internal fight. You would, think that, you would think that they would want to get rid of those 25 people that are stopping them. You know what I mean? <laughs> You know, yeah, I, I know, but they have this. Uh, they they have they have the power to get rid of the speaker. I, I there's a lot of fighting today. Uh, this guy Johnson might be a smart guy, though. I mean, he handled it so far uh, pretty well. I'm not commending what he did, but but he's managed the, to handle the crazies uh, surprisingly well. Uh, so uh, you know, he might turn. McCarthy did not. He could not deal with them. And, uh, you know, we've had this succession of, uh, after Paul Ryan of, uh, of speakers uh, who, who uh, uh, you know, are at a loss to create uh, majorities, uh, political majorities. And so you get shutdowns of the government, and they themselves now realize that when they shut the government down, it doesn't help their, their electoral chances as a national party, even if it might make their constituents happy. Mm. All right. Well, here's another question from the audience. 
Help us understand the Democrats' relentless focus on identity politics and the oppressed oppressor framework. <laughs> oh, that, that's somebody who will like our book. Yeah. <laughs> you had a whole chapter on this, so. Uh, we have a whole, the whole, the last, uh, the book is divided into two parts. And the first part is mostly about the economy and the, uh, the and the second part is about cultural radicalism. You know, it's it's hard for me to uh, understand how how it happened for the Democratic Party that they have become so focused on these issues. Uh, you know, again, I'm totally against discrimination against transgender people. But how did this become such a huge issue? I mean, I just you know, I mean. I understand defund the police and things like that because that comes out of the the George Floyd uh, killing. So there, you know, there really is again a set, set of incidents. But but one of the things we talk about in the, in the book is that um, the parties themselves used to be you used to you could make a division between the governing class of a party, which was again big labor, big business big big agriculture whatever and the electorate but with the growth of the internet especially in the 90s um influence becomes much more dispersed and the you get the the development of all these kind of institutions that aren't necessarily part of the official party but that are still identified with the Democrats. So you get MSNBC, uh, you get all these uh, publications, websites, foundations, etc. And you get the same thing with the Republican, with the Koch brothers and Americans for Prosperity and the evangelical groups. And these kind of shadow groups, so we call them the shadow party, become very influential. Within the Democratic Party, the shadow, the shadow groups. Again, we're talking about the foundations, the media, uh, very much grow out of this division of the country between the large post-industrial metro centers that specialize in finance, uh, uh, computer information, uh, universities, advanced healthcare. Uh, all these kind of things, and uh, small town and mid-sized uh, midtown America that's more identified with resource extraction. What exists of manufacturing, farming, uh, oil, uh, coal mining. So you get that kind of division in the country within these advanced met these uh, advanced metro centers. They're very much dominated by uh, professionals, uh, again, college-educated, advanced degree, and by what you would call a certain uh, the uh, the vanguard of this group. That's an old use an old Marxist term, uh, <laughs> which uh, who are very much into the identity politics uh, and into the into. Uh, uh, yeah, Again, very extreme views on race and immigration, on sex, uh, also on climate change, a kind of uh, a view that a catastrophic view that we're about to get extinguish the planet by 2030. And they dominate, uh, poly they dominate again, the, the shadow party of the Democrats. So 
I, I've given a kind of fuzzy explanation, but that's that's a lot of what goes on. And um, in the Democratic Party, too, I think it skews young. The shadow party skews young. In the Republican Party, it, it tends to skew old. <laughs> so uh, if you look at the, let's say, the Bernie Sanders voters versus the Trump voters, you get this incredible age uh, difference between them. Yeah, but, but Bernie and Trump were about the same age. Yes, exactly. But 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 uh, and yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the uh, things that you mentioned there um, that I think we can go into a little bit more detail. You talk about when someone doesn't have power, what do they do? And you you I think you quoted someone as saying you can control hiring practices, firing practices, and words. I don't remember where that came from, but. It's, it was an interesting way of analyzing what's going on because there's a lot of hiring and firing problems going on too. Uh, that's part of this uh, cultural uh, change. But the word, yeah, I mean the the uh, talking about the political correctness and the language and all that stuff. It, it, you know, again, I think there's an element of mystery to that, and I think that you again you have to look at the enormous impact of of social media. Uh, I I would say you know what you find there is a is an intersection of social media on the one hand and a kind of religious impulse. Um, that reflects a a certain kind of uh, concern about the country and the way the country's gone, the lack of a common religion, the decline of of, uh, organized religion. Um, The political correctness is is the counterpart among Democrats and among these Democratic shadow party of uh, uh, right-wing evangelicism is among the Republicans, they're sort of the, mm-hmm. you know, the mat. They're the matched uh, ex- extremes. Mm-hmm. So uh, that you know, again, that's that's where I would see it. You use the word neo-puritanism for some of it. Um, and I, I've heard. Yes, that absolutely. So I I used to I once wrote an article about the uh, weathermen. Remember mm-hmm. from my, now I'm not talking about the meteorological, but the no. uh, political group of yeah. the 1960s when they were having trouble. And I called it when the uh, visible saints go marching out because uh, they were uh, the visible saints were uh, pure in the American puritism from the 17th century. Uh, If you were part of the elect, if you were a part of uh, God's chosen, you were a visible saint. And there was a kind of moralism, again, that that started in the 60s and has recurred and revived now about being uh, uh, pure, pure in your ideas and in your ideals, and uh, free from all the the taint of whatever phobia or ism or emacy uh, you can talk about. And uh, again, you can look at the controversy over diversity, equity, and inclusion that's going on. Uh, when we did, when we looked at the po- polling and stuff from the not, not 2016 election. The single biggest issue that draw drew voters to Trump was the political correctness stuff, mm-hmm. and you know you could see that when they did the uh, Access Hollywood, the Democrats and I think the Trump people themselves thought the you, you know I hope you know what I'm referring to the thing where he was talking about uh, women in a derogatory right. way and whoever he had screwed or whatever mm-hmm. and, you know uh, it was very gross but. 
it, you know, the assumption again among Democrats was this is the end of him. But it wasn't the end of him because there are a lot of people in the country who think, well, they, you know, they won't let us just talk like we think. And, you know, um, it's it's uh, again, they want to turn America into a church of political correctness. So that remains a big problem. It pops up with this Harvard stuff, uh, bloody and gay. I mean, it's it's all over the place. You you also mentioned, and I think it's always useful uh, to mention the historical thing, is that this kind of apocalyptic thinking. Now you, I think you mentioned in terms of the climate change one. That kind of apocalyptic thinking has has been a part of American culture for its entire history. Maybe maybe it's a slightly higher percentage right now, but but it has always been a strong strain of apocalyptic thinking. Yes, absolutely, and uh, it uh, you know it, it's uh, especially common in the uh, it starts with uh, the millennialism of the Puritans, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it uh, carries through to the Millerites. You know, so Seventh Day Adventists, mm-hmm. the world was going to and and. Uh, in the 1950s, when when uh, when I was growing up, uh, we thought the world was going to end from nuclear war, and we did all these uh, air raid drills, you know, where you mm-hmm. get under your seat. And get there, under the there's desk is very helpful, you know, to get under that desk. I know. Yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't have to do all the other boring things. <laughs> and and uh, there, among the young people, there's an element of that that goes into thinking about uh, the climate. And uh, uh, again, I, I, you know, we're not the deniers. We think there's a real problem and that we have to do something yeah. about it. But there's a fear, that, uh, there's an exaggerated fear that uh, if we don't do anything, if we don't get rid of all fossil fuels by the year 2030, the planet is doomed. And I, I think that that's a kind of, again, a kind of religious uh, uh, thinking. Uh, very interesting, because that's a, a second version. You, you, you use the same thing about uh, identity politics, that maybe the the loss of, of um, standard religious, you know, middle-of-the-road religious beliefs, we can't, I'm sure they wouldn't like it being called that, but from the 1950s and 60s, that, that sort of everybody was in one category or another, or almost everybody, that the loss of that has has made the search for some alternative, even if it's totally unconscious, um, could create these kind of extremes that seems to be driven by religious-type beliefs or religious... Yeah, I, I can't understand it all. I mean, somebody... When I, again, w- when I was uh, first going to college... Uh, these books came out like Growing Up Absurd by Paul Goodman and A Coming of Age in America by Edgar Friedenberg. Mm-hmm. And they seemed to really understand what this generation was going to go through, the alienation. Uh, we we're all going to work, you know, in these big corporations. And and uh, there's something going on now among young people that we don't entirely understand. And uh, there's people like Jonathan Haidt and... Uh, What's Gene Twenge from San Diego State who have written about it and uh, who attribute a lot of it to the, uh, on the one hand, social media, and on the other hand, the change in parenting. Uh, people, uh, kids are no longer having the same kind of independent play that they had when they grew up. And, um, you know, it's, I, you find among the young, I, I, when I wrote the about Bernie Sanders followers, uh, 
you find among young, both in the United States and in Europe, a real uh, anti-establishment view. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most of the uh, in in the Germany and in France, the right-wing populist parties, they're young. They skew very young. So there's something happening among young people, and we don't completely understand it. They John John Hay talks about the incidence of mental illness, which has gone way up among teens. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of uh, the sexual identity stuff also very, you know, very prevalent among young people. Why now? I mean, why are people unsure about uh, whether they're really a man or a woman or whether, you know, again, the growth of binary, all these initials and stuff. So so there's something going on and we don't really uh, fully understand what it is. And it's contributing to our politics. Question, do you know of any writers that you've read, younger writers, you know, like under 35 or so, that have addressed this issue um, and have made it make more sense to you? Because that might be helpful to our readers, too. Because if they're trying to understand it, I know that you do a lot of reading in the area, so. Um, <laughs> I don't do that much reading, but, uh, you know, I... I uh, uh, some of the some of the stuff that you could read in Jacobin, for instance, which is a socialist publication, they 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 don't like my views on immigration, but on other stuff, that you know they have some interesting things to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I listen to a lot of podcasts like everybody else, and so uh, I, I think that that's a again you'll find you'll find people there, but I don't have a list of things right now that I could tell you. I mean, I've been mainly uh, rediscovering all these old novelists and stuff. So I haven't, I haven't, uh, I haven't been reading enough. I could tell you about the Wallace Stegner. I just. Good. It's <laughs> a novel. That would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let, let me cover one other. Oh, it's a very big question. Um, that came in. What do you feel is the biggest challenge facing the democratic party? And then what about the Republicans? We kind of covered a little bit of it, but I don't know if that you consider it the biggest challenge, but dealing with their extremes is sort of what well, you know, the tr- it's very easy to say what the biggest challenge of the Republican Party is and <laughs> how to uh, how to incorporate some of Trump, but not Trump to get rid of him. And, mm-hmm. you know, the only way they're going to do that is if he loses in uh, in in uh, 2024 if he wins uh you know it's gonna it's not i i don't believe this stuff about fascism or dictatorship but there's going to be real chaos mm-hmm. uh and uh you've seen nothing uh, but the kind of crazy stuff we had in his first term i i would expect that 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 would continue so they have to they really have to do that but they have a, again a generation of people that might be able to pull it off once he's off the once he once he leaves the stage. Uh, the the uh, Democrats again have a gerontocracy problem, and uh, there's a big sort of gap between um, the older Bernie, Biden, uh, Schumer, uh, these people, and and uh, you know to go to the very younger the people from the squad who were. Uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Progressive Caucus, which, again, are t- too much tied, in my opinion, to the ident- identity pol- 
Arctic stuff. And you can see it on their unwillingness to rethink uh, immigration in uh, right now in the in the big debate that's uh, going on. So I think the the Democrats have to have to develop a uh, a, a leadership. Uh, uh, you know, the 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 thing that that re- remains for me is that I think the Republicans still are much more tied to business and to a corporate America and uh, to to a kind of inequality than the Democrats. And that that's the the abiding faith that the Democrats have in equality uh, and for labor unions, even if the labor unions are weak, I think could carry them through. So they, uh, my hope is that out of that they will develop a leadership that is that understands that the American people are pretty much left center on uh, economic policy, minimum wage, all that stuff. As long as it benefits everybody, it is not just targeted. And on cultural issues, uh, very middle of the road. Uh, patriotic, um, you know, anti-discrimination, but not the, but don't want don't want policies uh, that uh, seem to just favor one group over all all the others. So, I, I, again, I have in that sense, and that's why we wrote the book uh, for uh, address to Democrats. More hope that it will develop in the Democrats, but I don't see it clearly in terms of the people who are now uh, in Congress. Mm-hmm. So um, part of the way you analyzed uh, in the book was that the Republicans had started to represent, at least um, in their words, the working class and got their attention, got their votes and took them away from the Democratic Party. But you don't think that their policies are lined up with 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 that group anyway. I mean, it's not like they're in favor of unions or anything. I, I think that they I, I think they have a real problem with it. And that's again, if you read this, uh, th- those various people I mentioned, there's a publication called Compact, too, on the Web that I would recommend. Uh, those are those are people, some, many of whom are Republicans who do understand this problem. That they that they have this, they've inherited this constituency. Uh, some of the constituency constituency comes theirs entirely uh, from social issues and from the mistakes of the Democrats. But uh, as far as the what the Republicans themselves stand for, they don't have a lot to offer those voters. So uh, that you know, that's the that's the problem that they face. Big question. You, the, the, the Republicans inherited the Wallace uh, vote. Do you yes. think that the that there's that big a segment of the population that still has that extreme views on race and so on? Or are you, you seem to talk about a lot of people are against discrimination. Um, so dealing with the if the Republicans dealt with the working class didn't didn't like feed that anger and feed that issue, but f- took care of other issues that they have whether that might not be a way to, to, to tone down the racial issues that seem to be worse than they were when we were young in some ways. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, South Carolina is where the uh, Civil War started. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's where uh, the Dixiecrats, Strom Thurmond, 1948, uh, the rejection of Dem- Democrats on civil rights. They, got, they have a black senator now. Mm-hmm. 
Now, you know, if we had old-fashioned racism of the George Wallace, we would not have a South Carolina would not be electing a, a black senator. So that, yeah, a lot has changed in the last 40, 50, 60 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, I, with Trump in 2016, I don't think it was a white supremacy of a, in terms of racism. I think that but I think the immigration thing, the build the wall was was very important. And I think that'll be true uh, in 2024. But a lot of those voters, uh, Hispanic voters, Hispanic working class voters, Latinos are starting to uh, move toward the uh, Republicans. So it's uh, uh, again, I I think that a lot of Democrats want to excuse the problems that the party has by saying, well, it's just racists on the other side. Whereas what is happening unbeknownst, I guess, to these people is that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of Latino, Asian American voters over the issue of affirmative action uh, and black voters over economic issues. Uh, are moving toward the Republicans. So again, this is a this is a big problem for the uh, Democrats. One of the things, in, one of the statistics that you had was interesting. Was that the voter Trump voters were more moderate on racial issues than the voters for Romney? Yes, my my uh, co- co-author uh, Rui Teixeira, You know that's his yeah. specialty is uh-huh. uh, analyzing those public opinion, and he discovered that wow. that's that's true. I, but you know, I can't entirely explain it, and it's hard to explain in terms of what uh, Trump has done in the last uh, whatever four, yeah. three or four years from Charlottesville to now. Yeah. In, in twenty twenty, in that election, he he had this. Uh, in, in uh, I know they did this in Virginia about uh, housing regulations that required lower income housing to be built, you know, apartments along with uh, big ones. And it was clearly aimed at a racial uh, vote. So, you know, good good luck if they want to elect Trump. I mean, yeah. but there are Republicans who are not racist, period. Yeah. And Republican politicians. Yeah, and and uh, so um, we're almost out of time. But uh, if you if you would like the audience to kind of hear what it is that you want the Democratic leadership to hear from the book, um, we were talking about this just before we started. Uh, that there is you you feel that there's not much of a reaction by some. Others obviously are interested. Um, to analyzing these problems in the Democratic vote. Because people were saying, well, the Democrats are going to completely take over and, and, and stay, and the Republican is the, uh, is the party that was self-destructing. And it seemed like it was self-destructing in many different ways. But, but either, neither well, party seemed well, self-destructing I, when they should. <laughs> uh, I guess the, the two messages I would take is... The first is that, you know, Obama had a chance when he had this big majority, and he came in in 2009, uh, to reform labor laws to make it easier for unions to organize. Uh, That really has to be a priority for the Democrats if they want to change the party. 
Uh, there's no other way. You know, the Republicans have had this enormous advantage for the last 20 or 30 years of having this uh, organized base of churches, uh, gun clubs, the the Koch brothers uh, network uh, that underlies the party that they can count on, whereas the Democrats are much more diverse, split, divided. Uh, again, that's so that's that's one thing I would think of. That's very important. Uh, and the other thing would be uh, they recognize that the, there are a huge cultural differences in the country uh, between, uh, you know, you could say middle America and the America of whatever, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., where I live, Boston. And uh, the key in politics is not to win out on those issues, but to find some kind of uh, common ground. And uh, I, I think, again, if you look back at the 1930s, uh, you'll see that uh, that was part of what Roosevelt did. That was part of his genius. So we really have to uh, we really have to do that and get away from the kind of ideological uh, purity on these issues. One one last question on a very controversial subject of abortion. Uh, if you um, have sort of one you know, Trump is sort of one for the people who supported them, that issue. And it seemed to be an almost one issue uh, concern for the evangelicals and other extremely religious people who, that's just such an important issue. And now it's going to all the different states and everybody's experimenting with it again as it was before, uh, but, but with different uh, outcomes, different, different laws, etc. Do you think that that will take one big piece out of the Republican, you know, like really strong support and say, well, we've got what we want. And so now we're going to become apolitical again because they were fairly apolitical before the issue. Oh, I think they're going to, there's going to continue to be big fights about it because uh, Democrats are going to try to make a national law out of it uh, mm-hmm. uh, for abortion rights. So it will, it will uh, continue to be a, a major issue. I don't know what's going to happen on the uh, the uh, abortion pills. That's going to be a huge issue because uh, they want to ban those and uh, make it make it states able to uh, ban the use of them. So I, I would expect that. I mean, the thing about that's odd about abortion is that on social issues, you really had uh, uh, to a great extent this kind of uh, dominance of Washington politics from, uh, oh, the 90s and the early 2000s of this alliance between the uh, the groups that come out of the 60s, feminist, civil rights, environmental, and uh, business, uh, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, whatever. And then, and, you know, so people really didn't expect that the evangelicals would get their way. And when they did, oh my God, you know, with the Dobbs decision, that was an enormous earthquake for the, uh, for the electorate. And it remains so there, they, um, uh, Trump is starting to back away. I don't know if you mm. notice this, he uh, started to say that uh, states should not ban abortions uh, mm. uh, outright. Uh, and the Democrats, on the other hand, are going to say, well, why do you think we have this Dobbs decision? It's because of the people that uh, Trump uh, uh, brought onto the Supreme Court. So that's going to remain an issue because that's, uh, you know, again, that was an issue that people just took for granted and was also sna- just snatched from uh, uh, under them. I mean, it would be as if 
Democrats decided that they were going to ban the use of uh, uh, of uh, non-electric cars all of a sudden. I mean, uh, you know, right. I, and the, the, the in Germany, they did something like that. This the uh, the coalition, they everybody was going to have to have a certain kind of uh, non-gas heater uh, by the year 2024. And lo and behold, the alternative for Deutschland, the right wing populist party, got all these votes in these last uh, uh, state state and local elections. And that a lot of that came as a backlash. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the Democrats have their own kind of crazy issues, but but abortion is one that's uh, uh, deadly for the Democrat uh, for the Republicans. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much, John. That was a lot of great insights into what's happening. Uh, one last question. If you if you were to compare what you expect 2024 to be like as a as a presidential election year, to all the other presidential election years you, you observed, where would you put it in terms of its uh, its craziness, expected craziness? I I, I you know I, I don't have a comparison. I don't think the comparisons to 1948 that I hear are relevant at, at all. I mean it's it's going to be fought over. Uh, you know uh, whether uh, people think the president is too old or whether they think he's too you know the other guy's too crazy and uh (laughs) (laughs) no policies at all right well there'll be policies but you know those are really underlying everything uh uh and in a way they're more important yeah than immigration or inflation or anything like that is the doubts about uh, biden's age and the doubts about the trump's at least his political sanity i don't go for this thing that he's crazy or something like that yeah but he's a, i i like the andrew sullivan uh called him compared him to one of shakespeare's mad kings yeah. one of the richards and something like that yeah. that's what that's what i think trump is like <laughs> Well, well, that gives us some hope because England survived. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it took like 600 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have time. No. <laughs> well, well, thanks a lot, John. That was great. Um, and okay. uh, we'll see you again at, at, when your next book comes out. My pleasure. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 121st year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for joining us and hope to come back to see us again soon. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.